0: Even though COVID-19, monkeypox, and HIV and AIDS are three very different kinds of viral infections, they all impact some people more than others. When fighting a pandemic, we'd like to think that we're all in this together, but the folks who face racism, homophobia, transphobia, poverty, and homelessness are more at risk than
1: anyone else. Today, Professor Dr. Stephen Thrasher joins us to look at why it's critical to address systemic inequality, racism, and bigotry when fighting off any pandemic. In his new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, Dr. Stephen examines why certain populations are more at risk from viruses like HIV, monkeypox, and COVID-19.
0: Plus, how do we talk about marginalized people and disease without stigmatizing anyone?
1: How the don't-say-gay laws affect public health.
0: And counteracting the cynical viewpoint that both sides are the same when trying to bring about political change. I'm Fausto Fernos. I'm Mark Villian. And this is Feast of Fun. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Thrasher, whose new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, takes a close look at why certain populations are more at risk from viruses, such as HIV and COVID-19. The book is a sensation and has been selected by a wide variety of organizations as the best nonfiction book of the year, including
2: us.
1: (laughs) Congratulations
2: Thank you so much I think this is my third time on Feast of Fun But my first time getting to do it with you in person So I, I very much appreciate that
0: well, I appreciate you coming here and uh, risking your life uh, with uh, COVID-19 going around and stuff. Well,
2: we all, you know, I tested this morning. You both tested this morning. I appreciate your testing protocol. So thank you very much.
1: I'm six vaccinations in. I have to be okay by now.
2: Yeah, we have the infinity <laughs> stones
1: of COVID <laughs>
2: vaccines. We have the
0: Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson, Johnson & and Johnson, and I even licked the doorknob just to be and sure. And you even
1: got COVID. I did. Yeah, so I got them all and and then some. He got COVID the day I got um a vaccinated. I got vaccinated. yeah. It was like wow. No, dodge the uh, bullet.
0: Doctor Thrasher, Stephen, may I call you? Yes. <laughs> um, where are we exactly with COVID, monkeypox, HIV at this point?
2: Three different stories there. HIV is a little bit of a mystery about exactly where we are right now. The first year of the COVID nineteen pandemic. It screwed up a lot of data. It screwed up ways to understand the data. And so there, there are ways that HIV got worse because people didn't they, didn't they didn't get treatment. They didn't get medication. There wasn't prevention work being done. But also people radically altered how they spent their time and what they did. So it came down in some way. So it, it's a bit where HIV has been over the past two, three years is a bit unclear. But HIV continues to be a pandemic that takes the lives of the better part of a million people a year around the world. Monkeypox—we're in very good shape with uh, the the CDC just showed last week that we're only averaging about two new cases a year in the United States, which is fantastic. That's the result of a number of things. Really great work done by queer organizations to do outreach to get vaccines to people. Having the you know dubious but. Um, ultimately good thing that we had recently been socialized to take vaccines as adults, which has not been the case in the United States for a long time. So building on that, lots of people got vaccinated. We're also just lucky that the the monkeypox virus behaves very differently than a virus like COVID. Uh, It can only go through people so many times. It gets weaker each time. Um, So it's effectively gone in the United States now, but it's something that really needs to be watched around the world because it's probably going to circulate up again at some point in time
1: and it's not something you can breathe in you pretty much have to have intimate contact with somebody to
2: yeah i mean that's yes um and this is something that and perhaps we'll talk about this um was a struggle to talk about very explicitly at times uh it was not a struggle for me and you know for people like you to talk about it but uh, monkeypox happened almost exclusively amongst men who have sex with men it only seemed to be moving sexually. It wasn't through generic, you know, close contact. It wasn't through breathing. Uh, there's emerging research that showed that it primarily was happening through rece- was being transmitted uh, into people through receptive, unprotected anal intercourse. Uh, we now know that it did replicate inside of semen, and it was behaving very differently. This is something important to know. Then. Previous versions of monkeypox. For decades, we've sort of been watching monkeypox, and it it moved through generic close contact and would lead to lesions on the hands, face, and back. The version we saw in the past year was very different. The virus mutated. It was moving differently. It seemed to be moving through um, through, uh, semen and through genital secretions. Mm
1: -hmm. So it was kind of like a sexually transmitted uh, infection, but not.
2: No, 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 it was. Yeah, yeah. So, no,
1: people were like, "How do we qualify this? What do we say?" So, this,
2: yeah, this is interesting. And I'm, I'm like, kind of my next big lecture. I'm writing about this exactly. Is to me, it was very explicitly a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, Ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent of the cases were moving amongst with men. It was moving through sexual contact. When you look at the definitions of sexual contact put out by the World Health Organization and through the Centers for Disease Control, it certainly met all of those qualifications. And I was very interested in the beginning, saying, "Well, you know, how how do we think about this? You know, HIV I, I've studied for many years, and we call it a sexually transmitted infection. But there are places where I do field research, including Puerto Rico,
0: mm-hmm.
2: where you're from, where almost a majority of the cases actually mm-hmm. move through." injection drug use and that's true in parts of the u.s south particularly appalachia and greece where i do research it's almost a majority of cases that are um through injection drug use shared needles shared needles excuse me not the drag queen but the no not practice. shared needles. Yeah. <laughs> um In sub-Saharan Africa, it Mm -hmm. was largely through what we call vertical transmission from parent to child during gestation. Um, But we still call it a sexually transmitted infection because sex is a major way that it moves. Um, And the same is true of many of the things you'd think of as STIs, herpes, hepatitis, various versions of of hepatitis. These all are things that can move sexually. They can also move through injection drug use. They can also move through blood transfusion, sometimes through um, breast milk, through through breastfeeding. But we still call them STIs monkeypox for whatever reason uh, this version of it was much higher in the percent that moved sexually you know there was maybe a one three percent um that was moving another way but it was so. Open. somebody
1: flew, like, like a towel or something you brushed up against somebody and you got it no that wasn't very rare
2: no the the way that it seemed like n- nothing seemed no nothing traced through Towels or bedsheets, okay. which is what was being said initially yeah, with right. this outbreak. A couple of things happened. There were some infants that got it. And when they were sort of generically putting it, saying that minors got it. But when you actually looked into the numbers, it was usually either... 12 and up, which means they're quite likely sexually active, nothing between like 12 and usually like six months. Okay. And then they're like very young infants. So they could be getting it through breastfeeding or through extremely close contact, Mm -hmm. sharing food, Um, but it wasn't, no, it wasn't just happening through bedsheets and needles um, in this time. And- yeah, it was really difficult to talk about this explicitly. There was a ba- I got backlash from members of the gay community from doing so, uh, and I thought it was strange. The CDC used this very tortured language. I think they they talk about sexually transmitted infections, and then they said this was sexually transmissible, mm. <laughs> but not but not sexually transmitted. But um,
1: certainly, I, I mean, gay men seem to be scared to death of this because they're just like, oh my god, I could get disfigured or I could die from it. Yeah. You know, and so they're just like, I got to get that vaccine. So people are staying outside of bars waiting for hours. Uh, Well,
0: I remember like uh, here in Chicago, a couple of bars were distributing the vaccine. And, you know, controversially, they only had like a certain small amount of, of vaccines to give out. And the people who would show up were a lot more. And so people were criticizing the bars because the bars had these long lines making it look like everyone's going out to clubbing, you know? And in fact, it was just there for for healthcare. And and after all these people had been waiting in line for hours to get a vaccine, they would come out and say, Sorry, we won't have a hundred, psych. And you know, I personally know people who were waiting in that line who then a week later caught monkeypox. Yeah. So that was like really frustrating and thankfully. It didn't grow and become the thing that the juggernaut that HIV or COVID-19 became.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's in my my theory of a viral underclass, I I Mm -hmm. argue that there are all these social vectors that drive why transmission happens, Mm -hmm. and I think they're very important. But like any theory... I think theories are things that help us think about situations, um, and there are limits to them. And, and I do think the particularities of viruses are important. So this one, like it just be, it behaves differently, and that's why we need to deal with it specifically. And I'm forgetting which one of you, I think it was you. Mark. Mark. Oh, <laughs> sent He me,
1: pointed a finger at me. <laughs>
2: I think, you know, who sent me uh-huh. um, in late June a screenshot of a friend saying that they were giving out uh, vaccines at Steamworks. Yes, And so I went... The Gay man's Bathhouse in Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I went vaguely in my mind, hoping I could get one, but really thinking, this is not going to be true. It's not going to happen, but at least I'll get a story. You know, I'll write a scene about the people who show up. Mm-hmm. But it was actually the case. You know, They did mm-hmm. have it, and that I felt was pretty well run. Um, they did come out and tell us we have 100... We think, you know, they went back in the line saying, you people clearly are not going to be amongst the hundred. Right. And then they told people, like, you will probably get one, but we are prioritizing. People. Sex workers um, and bartenders who we've told who work in the neighborhood who can come in, which I thought was a really smart strategy because at the time we were tr- trying to see who's who's coming into contact with the most mm-hmm. people. And so it's good. They to couldn't get. say, like, oh, whores get it first. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the bartender, th- you know, we we, yeah. we didn't know then exactly how yeah. it was moving. So the bartenders was a little questionable. But mm-hmm. certainly sex workers were really good people to make sure got vaccinated first. And how could you prove you were a sex worker? Would you show the receipts? I think there was a lot like of honor system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't I don't know if they yeah. I don't know if they asked for proof. I mean I think there was a lot of honor system And what I found really frustrating at that time, and I think I'd already written my first article, is that those of us who studied this had seen this coming. Like we'd started seeing February, March, April, that monkeypox for decades had been existing in about 10 countries in Western Central Africa. And then uh, February, March, April, it was happening amongst men who have sex with men in Europe. Then it was in Canada. We knew it was only a certain amount of time that it would come here. I live very close to the, uh, Congress hotel. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I remember seeing like international man of leather, uh, international Mr. Leather happening and, and like, Oh shit. Like it's, it's such a shame that we're not like vaccinating at this event. Mm -hmm. um, that event did have eight confirmed cases, which was probably lower than it could have been because there are a lot of older men who go to that who probably had been vaccinated for smallpox, mm-hmm. um, which probably gave some level of protection to the group. But so
0: wearing all that rubber didn't protect anybody? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, rubber. I'm sure there were some things that happened without rubber. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. Um, well, Steamworks has always been a pretty good partner. You know, they've worked with the AIDS Foundation in Chicago and other places for health research because, you know, or health outreach because it's like, you know, you have to keep. Your clientele healthy if you want to continue having them as, as as clientele. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, and lots of organizations, including you know, Steamworks, including there were I think there were volunteer um, nurses from Rush uh, who were actually staffing that. This is before there was any kind of kind of city infrastructure mm-hmm. about getting out this mm-hmm. vaccine. Were doing everything they could. It was just frustrating that had, as you said, had we had more vaccine, more people would have taken it quickly. The federal government, the Biden administration had a purchase order on 300,000 and kind of said, let's wait and see what happens rather than like getting them all out quickly, which would have been a better use of resources. Um, But it was, it was frustrating to see that a lot of the organizations did this, did not get the respect and support that organizations got for COVID for, so for example, you know, when the federal government was trying to get out COVID-19 vaccines, they would pay, you know, I mean, they worked with lots of volunteers, Mm -hmm. but they would also pay churches or pay organizations for their space. And if they were providing nurses or healthcare workers, the federal government would then reimburse the organization for them um, for both matters of fairly paying people, but also dealing with, you know, liability. They're real issues when you're dealing with medicine. Um, And so I think, I don't know how it was ultimately resolved explicitly at Steamworks, but I know that at many places that had done this for COVID and then did it again for monkeypox, the governments were not giving them the reimbursement or the support. They were sort of expecting people to do it out of the goodness of their heart. Mm -hmm. And of course, organizations... We're doing that you know many of us were were happy to pitch in and, and help this happen, but everything can't happen through volunteerism and it was really interesting for me to I wrote a, a piece for The Guardian about this to talk to gay men of a certain age in the United Kingdom and in the United States about their memories of AIDS starting to happen and really feeling like they had to fight tooth and nail to get a response um, and that it was really hard fighting governments to get them to take it seriously. And then seeing with COVID-19, seeing sort of the whole world mobilize in a a Mm -hmm. very, very different way, very, very quickly. And then feeling like with Monkeypox, it was back to the same thing again, like really having to fight, not getting the support, having foot dragging, having a lot of shame around it.
0: And now with uh, COVID nineteen case closed, everything's resolved. (laughs) La 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 la. Nothing to talk about.
2: No, (laughs) it is (laughs) interesting. Except your book.
0: But you know, the thing about it is, is right now it's like we have a certain level of fatigue with dealing with COVID, with HIV, with monkeypox, with all these viral diseases. You know, and don't you know? Don't get talking about bird flu and all these other things that... The price of eggs, yeah. The price of eggs, you know? So so it's like our, our, I guess, so, you know, as somebody who studies all this stuff, do you feel like we're living in more dangerous or more diseased times? Hmm. Or are, are we just dealing with this differently and that's why we're dealing with all this stuff all of a sudden, it feels like?
2: Well, COVID gave us... Um, unlike AIDS and HIV, not to say that they're unimportant sure, in any way... Um, COVID made it really difficult for almost any human to ignore the presence of viruses. Viruses have have had a profound effect on our life. They can, and throughout human history, Mm -hmm. they've had, you know, real interruptions to life. Um, At different times, they can flare up. As I write about quoting someone else in my book, "There, there are more viruses on Earth than there are stars in the universe. I think we can... really Yes, we tend to think that humans are, you know, the most sophisticated life forms and on the top of the animal pyramid, but in ways like viruses are a more sophisticated (laughs) organism. They're extremely efficient uh, and they can reproduce very quickly. And they have Um, no feelings. They have no feelings. They have no thoughts, um, but they do know how to reproduce themselves. And yeah, and technically, I guess uh, there's still controversy whether they're a life form. Yep, yeah, that, that's a that's a biological and philosophical controversy, um, which I always ask my students to to report on uh, every term, and they get very very different responses, and it's fascinating to hear them.
0: What do most of your students think about viruses? Do
2: they think they're actually a life form or not? They like kind of. I'm trying to think. The last ter- I just taught my class in viruses this last fall, and they sort of sit. They kind of look back philosophically and think about the definitions of life and, you know, they there, there are different ones and, you know, one, and mm. um, they don't have sentience, you know, they're not thinking, but they can reproduce, which is one of the things of life. And one of the reasons I think we do talk about viruses, viral meat, I read about viral underclass, viral media, one of their real defining characteristics is that they cannot reproduce on their own. They have to have a host or a living, a living organism mm. to be inside. So bacteria can actually uh, reproduce and grow outside of the body, uh, kind of like mold or fungus, um, and or yogurt. Yogurt is full of bacteria. Yeah. 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 Um, And so, but the viruses have to get inside something else living. So I think the student, my students this last time were really thinking about, you know, are, is it alive if you can't, if you can't be alive on your own? Like there's something about viruses that they have to get into living beings, which makes it, I I think in a way like not quite living. So
0: if they're not living beings, what's a better language to describe them? Uh,
2: they're organic material. They're organisms that cause yeah. problems, and they're part of yeah. you know. And what, what yeah. part of what I try to think about in my book is that they show they show that we are not separate. Like there's this organic material going between us all the time, um, and that they're they're a life component of the whole organism of the earth. You know, when we think about if we think about a system, they are part of the life system in ways that are very helpful. There there are viruses inside of us that and excuse me, bacteria inside of us that we would die if we didn't have. Wait a second. uh,
1: There are viruses that we have inside of us that if we didn't have, we would die?
0: Well, all life on Earth kind of, you can argue, to some degree, evolves— because of, of of things that happen to us, either from solar radiation or viruses or other things entering and leaving our cells against our
1: wills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, the viruses, so, I don't
2: know that we would die without, but like they they are now a part of the system. It's almost yeah. like like what, pulling out a brick a brick out of the building and would collapse. But without bacteria, yes, you would definitely. You lose certain bacteria and you would shit yourself and die of, you know, diarrhea without right. the things helping you digest food.
0: There was a saying in the 19, late 80s, actually, there's a little bit of you and me and every bit of HIV. Hmm, I've not heard that before. but that's... <laughs> And I thought it was a beautiful way of looking at viruses as part of our biology. And I, and I think that's what separates your approach then from a lot of other people is that you're not necessarily seeing this as an adversary. You're thinking about this as a condition of the of humanity and how we best
2: mitigate that harm. Yes, it's about a relationship. And yeah. this is one of the reasons why I think queer thinking, queer theory, yeah. gay activism was so helpful. And approaching COVID-19 was extremely helpful and monkeypox is that I think as, you know, just to talk about those of us in the room as gay men, you know, we understand that, like, a virus Mm -hmm. is not something you manage by yourself. Uh, And so often what I write about HIV criminalization, viruses are often dealt with at a societal level as if it's almost like a magical stork you know like mm-hmm. we know that storks don't drop babies into people to reproduce reproduction is something that happens socially viruses move socially they move between us and i think gay men have a long history even before aids of understanding you get tested for sy- syphilis you get tested for chlamydia if you have you know more than one sexual partner you understand that like biological matter is moving mm-hmm. between us and it's something that we have to res- that we have to deal with communally it's something that we are going to negotiate, you know, one on one, but also collectively for our own health, but for the health of each other, we understand that our, that, 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 the, that our health is dependent upon one another. And so that was a really good framework for understanding COVID-19 and how, you know, we
1: share this air and it's not something that we can, you know, you can't just deal with it by yourself. Cause like with HIV is like, you would not get HIV by not injecting drugs or not having sex with people, but how are you not gonna breathe air, right? Yeah, you can't not you can't not breathe there.
2: and with you know with monkeypox, it was you know queer men were very quick to be willing to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and to volunteer to help each other get vaccinated in a way that I think the larger society struggles. So you're looking with more. at the community.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, so you have the community depending on each other, and you know, I think about some of these uh, things that have gone extinct, like they say, like the passenger pigeons. You know, there was a lot of passenger pigeons in this country at one point in time, but because they got such a small population, they weren't able to help each other out they couldn't feed each other they couldn't find nesting they couldn't find new ground so they eventually died out and now they're thinking that's the same thing that happened with a lot of the Neanderthals is because their populations became so small they couldn't support each other and so they just you know were wiped out or taken into us and so when you're looking at like these the you know the viral underclass of these people that you know uh, you know they're incarcerated because you write a lot about people being in prison they get HIV and they die and then it's like who's left in their community who's supporting them And and uh, are they going to be able to make it because they've lost vital members of their community?
0: Yeah. Can we sort of uh, backtrack a little bit about the title of your book, The Viral Underclass? Who's that? Yes. Am I part of that?
2: And how do I get out of it? (laughs) Uh, We can certainly talk about it. And, you know, who's in it or not? I think about this with myself in the book, Um, like all matters of classes is is up for debate and something to think about. Um, So the term itself, the viral underclass, comes from an activist named Sean Strube. Who I first met in my reporting about HIV criminalization. And he wrote about it originally in the context of laws that prosecute people for uh, transmitting HIV. And so they have, you know, the, the way. This happens in countries all over the world. About 70 countries have such laws. Since I've started reporting on its fall in the U.S., when I started, it was about 30 states. I think it's now 24, 25, a number of states have have repealed them, including Illinois as one of uh, only two states. The other is Texas (laughs) to completely decriminalize HIV. Um, So I'm glad that we've done that here in Illinois. But there's a variety of ways people can get prosecuted for uh, HIV transmission. The most common is that if you become HIV-positive, Almost everywhere in the world if you, unless you 're doing a home test, you know if you do any kind of test through a doctor through a medical facility, your name is going to be added to a registry um, saying that you have HIV and the state will know forever that you have it and Then, if you have sex with somebody or um, share needles with somebody that that gets called into uh, that comes before the court much less often it 's most often if you have sex with somebody, they can go to a prosecutor and say this I found out this person's hiv positive and they never told me um, and the setup for that is very it's right for uh abuse in a, a common scenarios couples together, one of them knows the other is HIV positive, they break up, they use that to, you know, try to get their ex. Mm -hmm. Um, And the horrible thing about it from a public health standpoint is, I mean, it it naturally doesn't do any good in the first place, but it gives another incentive not to know your status. You know, people, if they know that they can be sent to prison, it's yet another reason uh, form stigma that you would not want to know that you were positive, because if you don't know, this bad thing could never happen to you. So the term Sean first used it to talk about how people with HIV are simply and literally living under a different set of laws than other people. And in the United States, we do have a history occasionally know, explicitly calling out uh, mutable characteristics, characteristics you, know, you can't change for the law. Um, they're, they're, they happen through history. They're very rare now. You know, there've been times where laws explicitly said if you're black or if you're Asian, this law applies to you. For the most part, though, that is not the case presently. We know that, you know, that uh, black people are disparately impacted by lots of laws and Latinx people are, but the law doesn't say that. With HIV, it does. It explicitly says if you are HIV positive, you are going to be Governed by this other set of laws involving very normal activities of life, Um, you know, uh, having sex. and in kind of its most nefarious form, things like spitting are even put in them, which HIV doesn't even move that way. And then in the past few years, there's been this terrible wave of what are called, quote unquote, blue lives matter laws, um, laws that are put on books to try to enhance the safety of police officers and to try to treat police officers as if they are a class of people under <laughs> under duress. Um, so if you are arrested by a police officer in certain states and you're HIV positive, and if that police officer bashes your head into the hood of their car or on the sidewalk and you start bleeding, um, they can prosecute you if they find out you're HIV positive for attempted murder of the police officer. That's like kind of the, the most nefarious oh, end geez. that these laws are used. Um and so there's you know, there's nothing good about any of this, right. of this yeah. punishing uh, of public health in this way. And so what Sean talked about was how even infants you know, th- that become HIV positive during gestation, they're going to be living under a separate set of laws, um, which seems quite un- unconstitutional.
1: But those laws also, too, for the most part, are only applied to people of color.
2: They're very disparately done so. So yeah, so uh, anywhere in the world that you look, uh, there's a component to black people. There, there are countries in Northern Europe that will do 12, 15, 17 HIV prosecutions a year, and they're all North African immigrants or African immigrants. Canada is 3% Black, and the majority of the prosecutions for HIV are against Black people. Um, and very, very similar dynamic in, in any state you look here in the United States. But of course, like many things in the US, there are lots of white people affected too. Um, they're just not in reflection to their percent of the population. And so I kind of use this phrase. um, I was, I had, I'd been researching for years, one case, which I talked about, I think on your show before, of a young man named Michael Johnson who got sent to prison for 30 years for HIV transmission. And I ended up writing about that in journalism for years and it became the basis for my doctoral thesis. And I was trying to figure out what kind of book I was going to make out of it when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Um And I, at that time, like many of us, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was going to happen. I do not know if I'd still have a job as a professor. I didn't know if there'd still be book publishing. Um, and my agent, who's a very good friend, Tanya McKinnon, um, looked back at my dissertation and said, you, you end talking about this phrase of a viral underclass. Think and this is March 2020 in the very early days. And she said, think about how that could be an analytic that helps you build off of what you've already done with HIV to start thinking about COVID-19. And so what I found was very early in the pandemic, the same maps I'd been looking at um, for COVID, or I'm sorry, for HIV, where it was happening, you know, where it was happening within cities, where it was happening around the country. Those were emerging as the same maps where there was COVID-19. I did a lot of research in St. Louis. Um, the first 12 people to die of COVID in St. Louis were all black, you know, all kind of in the, the same part of the city. Um, and so I started wondering, like, why do these very, very different viruses, are they affecting um, the same kinds of people? Because h-, h from sort of a virology standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, sars COVID 2 and uh, HIV are, are quite different viruses. So, what you're thinking, like, what do they share in common? Yeah, what do they share in common? And so, what they sh- yeah. they share in common are all these social vectors that that make them more Is like
0: poverty? Is it access to food? Is it education?
2: Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. So I yeah. write about 12 different vectors. And, uh-huh. to, and to kind of start with one that you mentioned earlier, prisons. I think prisons, I, I'd known for a long time, prisons are an engine of HIV and AIDS um, and have been for a long time. They suck the kinds of people who are most likely to be affected in the first place into prisons, they're uh, not in any way guaranteed to even be tested for HIV. Um, if they are, you know, it takes a long time to get medicine. The young man I wrote about, who Johnson. Was a- Michael Johnson, who was arrested for HIV transmission, didn't get medicine for seven months. I found out that's completely correct.
1: And he was convicted for spreading HIV. And when he was in prison, they did not give him treatment. For the first seven months,
2: yes. And so I found out that's completely common. And then when people get out, even those who are HIV positive, um, the prison will give them between zero and at most, you know, four weeks, between zero days and at most like 28 days of pills when they get out. So it's very common for them to, to get out and to uh, have a very high viral load quickly mm-hmm. if they're not transitioned into care. Michael was, but only because he had all these people surrounding him. It's very easy for someone not to move into care. Um, and then with COVID, there's really arguable research, I think, showing that the reason why the U.S. has more COVID cases than anywhere else in the world, per capita, <laughs> in raw numbers, often per capita, why we've had by far the most deaths of anywhere in the world, um, is because we also have the most incarcerated population in the world. You know, there, there have been times where, well, we, we've had throughout the pandemic, 25% of our people, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. We've had, throughout the pandemic, 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Wow. And then at times we've also had 25% of the world's COVID cases and, and 25% of the world's COVID deaths. Um, well, in 2008,
0: um, there was this uh, really great article, and, uh, and then people were sort of talking about this. The country of Portugal, at, before it decriminalized all drugs, had the highest rates of HIV mm-hmm. in the European mm-hmm. Union. Yep. Yeah. Because of their decriminalizing all drugs and having a very robust healthcare system where people could get the treatment, they dramatically cut their HIV infection yeah. rates almost to disappearing. Yeah. So everybody sort of talks about PrEP and you know Truvada and all this stuff, but really decriminalizing drugs in the United States would be this the most uh, um, significant way to reduce all these viral diseases, wouldn't they? Yeah, certainly. So Because so many people go to jail, prison,
2: because of drugs to they, this day. Even. They go to jail because of them. That's where we're spending the money instead mm-hmm. of on public health as well. Um, as I write about in the book in the, nine, in the 90s under the Clinton administration and with you know, the help of a number of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus and shepherded through the Senate by then-Senate judicial, uh, Judiciary Chairman Joe Biden, who, of course, is now president they passed the welfare, you know, the quote-unquote welfare reform bill and the crime bill. Um, and the welfare reform bill was very draconian. And the crime bill uh, not only increased drugs for uh, sentences for for people who are using drugs, it also made it basically illegal for anyone who's even been arrested for drug convictions to live in public housing. So the effect of that was, in essence, if you've been arrested for you know, for allegedly using or selling marijuana or cocaine or something like that, just arrested, not even prosecuted, um, and your family lives in public housing, you, in essence, can't go home to your to your family when you leave, which was one of the reasons why there was an explosion of black homelessness uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, and one of the reasons why black homelessness continued to increase. And homelessness, for any kind of disease or, or sickness, is a huge reason why uh, people get more sick. So that's one of the reasons why we see such disparate rates racially, it's because homelessness is so much higher amongst black
1: people. I heard you recently on social media, you didn't use the term homelessness. You referred to somebody as somebody who is denied housing. And I thought that that was uh, a powerful way to put it.
2: I try to. I mean, I use different terms. Thank you. Um, you know, I'll use different terms to talk about homelessness. I try to use people-centered language and not just talk about someone as a homeless person yes. or, as a, or as an ex-con mm-hmm. um, to not just define somebody by sort of the worst thing that's happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it is also good to talk about someone who's denied housing or what we called. Because um, housing is a right housing is a right um and to talk about you know manufactured poverty and how these and and uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore uses this phrase
1: called you can google it <laughs> <laughs>
2: no i'll think of it in a second um Organized abandonment—that mm. there's an or, that, that you know these things don't just happen. There's sort of an organization that that creates the conditions in which people are abandoned by the society. Um, COVID, I, I think, from a sort of structural virus perspective, is the worst uh, at moving through jails, even more than prisons. And uh, you know, I have colleagues who've written about this. And one of the reasons why. COVID is so high in the United States, arguably, you know, you could argue like a third or 40% of our cases are because we have the world's biggest population going into local jails and they're held there for a few days or until they're rained. They go home, then they come back and then they go home. And it's moving within the prison and then it's going back into the communities of the kinds of people who are most likely to be arrested. And so that's one of the ways that the jail itself is the engine of actual transmission. But then, you know, once you have any kind of arrest record, it becomes much harder to get a job. It becomes a, a, extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get housing. Um, and it certainly becomes harder to get the kind of job that you're going to have health care. Uh, and so that's, like, kind of the secondary engine. And then, as mm. you know, you, you were saying as well, in a country like Portugal, yes, yeah, sp- but take the money, spend it on prevention, pr- spend it on ways to keep people healthy.
0: No, that's- they are they, attributing the reason they were able to reduce their mm. HIV infection rates down to probably zero – was just getting people out of prisons, period. Well, that's that, part yeah, of it. No, this
1: is before prep.
2: No, no, Wait, yeah, but I mean yeah, that. No, no, yeah. not, not even before prep, but like, yeah. and the money you're not spending on them in the jails is right. also money that can go into social housing. Because you, like you that.
1: do write about like these austerity measures. Yeah. You know? So I write about it
2: uh, in Greece and Europe as yeah. well mm-hmm. when I, because um, so much of my work and my background has largely been about racial dynamics in the United States and historically writing about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And so it was really interesting, if sad, to see this happening in other parts of Europe as well. And I write about a case study in Greece where uh, prior to their economic crash they would had very effective and very low HIV rate, largely, as I was saying earlier, um, a lot of their HIV is driven through injection drug use. So they would had very innovative and good and not particularly expensive um, street outreach going out to people, taking sterile syringes, you know, quote unquote clean needles to people who use injection drugs, taking it to them, getting a very, very low rate of AIDS. There were in Athens, which is a city of about 4 million people. They were down to like 15 new HIV cases a year through injection drug use. Then after the EU uh, imposed austerity in their their economic crisis Mm – Uh, They basically cut those programs Mm. and the HIV rate went up 3000 percent, which costs more money in the long run, which costs more money in the long run. And and the bodies of the people who are put Mm. in front of it, I say that's like that is manufacturing a viral underclass. Mm. And here in the U.S., I feel like we're Mm. you know, we can see ways that a viral underclass where the state, in essence, I think, is opening up. The, the veins and the orifices of people's bodies and making them uh, subjected to viruses, you can see it in a state like Florida where they're saying you can't say gay. You can't get transgender, can't get transgender care. And that's, in essence, the state saying, we're not going to give you the education to know how to not get, we're not going to let you get sterile syringes from your doctor. We're going to force you to get any care that you do get on the contraband market, and we're going to leave you not knowing. Because
1: the, the, the don't say gay bills are, are deadly. And and, and and have huge ramifications beyond just like, oh, I didn't realize I was gay until I got out of high school because I never learned about it. It's like you're not learning what you need to learn to protect yourself against what's out there.
0: Right. And those came from Vladimir Putin from Russia. <laughs> those yeah. are imported into the United States conceptually and the execution of those. And we've been reporting on this yeah. for quite right some time. Yeah. Um, the don't say gay bills and the, the criminalization of of LGBT symbols and and the discussion of that that comes right there from the Republicans' co- connection with you know with Vladimir Putin and the Russian
2: oligarchs. Well, they're all learning that from the Americans. Um, and vice <laughs> it's versa. Vice uh, vice it's versa. a little bit uh, uh, like you, a it, think tank there, like like the yeah. uh, the laws you a, see in it countries like first there over there. I don't know no, the timeline of that, but but we we grow that ourselves yeah, and then we export yeah. it through, you know, like the laws in Uganda, um, yeah. the anti-gay laws in Uganda are very much from American missionaries right. going mm-hmm. to that part of the world. Um and, and so, so yeah, so so
0: why is it so important for them to do because th- it seems almost like trivial and sort of like arbitrary. Like especially someone like George Santos who used to be a drag queen, <laughs> you know, is now and he's gay, you know, it's and he, now he's like one of the most you know he's on these committees. He no, no matter what he's lying. I think he's about. on the science committee. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that horrifying? And you know, and, and so to me, it's sort of interesting to see the fact that Republicans have figured out how to divide and conquer and where to put their energy into into creating the maximum amount of harm
2: because their power comes from the fact their ability to harm people. There's certainly, on the state level, um, a lot of Republican harm that's happened, particularly in states like uh, Texas, uh, Florida, and um, i trying to remember, was it Kentucky that John Stewart interviewed mm-hmm. the Attorney General from, where they're very explicitly, and particularly making trans care illegal, both for, for youth uh, in Florida, they're also taking a playbook from... Um, these work requirements around food stamps and, and things of this nature to say that anyone who uses Medicaid cannot get uh, gender-affirming care as well. So in essence, like the Hyde Amendment with abortion, it's making, in essence, being trans illegal for poor people, for anyone who relies upon Medicaid for any of their, um, for any of their care. Uh, in uh, Kentucky, I think, and you know, sorry, Tennessee, they've made it so young people can't get trans-affirming care. Um, so that, yeah, that is deadly. It's not. I mean, it's deadly in sort of creating suicidal ideation and, yeah. and more risk to suicide. But it's also making people at the what I studied, sort of the very viral level, more likely to be getting syringes from the contraband market and hormones from the contraband market when they can mm-hmm. be getting them completely safely, you know, from their healthcare provider. Um, and so then it says making them much more likely to get hepatitis and HIV.
1: Because these people are already under great pressure and these laws just put even more pressure on them. To
2: yeah, and, you know, and it's really horrifying. So th- that's sort of my Republican aim, but I take a lot of my aim at the Democrats and at liberals and the Clintons, and, and the Clintons uh, historically in the book. Um, you know, as we're talking now, there was like the umpteenth New York Times hand-wringing story about trans youth yesterday, I think published, or the day should before. They
1: get, should they have access to medical care or not? Yeah. In the New York Times is very kind of like, well, we don't know, even though that there are literally 10s and 1000s of stories of young trans people coming forward and being like, this saved my life. But they're rather give like those two or three people who decide that, you know, they want to detransition is the term that they use. Um, They're giving them a lot of press and acting as though these three people that may have had their life, quote unquote, ruined for transitioning have some kind of application onto everybody else who is fully happy and fulfilled.
0: Yeah. And yeah. trans people are more likely to be doing hormone replacement therapy on their own, which means they may not be able to afford or understand where to get uh, need clean needles. Uh, you can buy them 20 bucks on Amazon <laughs> these days, you know, but
2: a lot of people don't have a credit card or don't have an address to, to receive those things. Yeah, Yeah. So nothing, to come back to a point you were saying about mm-hmm. PrEP, nothing matters if people don't have a home in terms of the things that we're trying to keep Mm -hmm. people safe. If you don't have a roof over your head, um, there are all kinds of reasons you're going to have bad health effects, but you can't get, you know, if you you don't have a roof over your head, you can't get prep, you can't get sterile syringes. Mm -hmm. You're not going to see a doctor regularly. You know, we we have to deal with that level of things. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, this is coming back to the, to the social. um, That is one of the reasons why, for instance, LGBTQ people were so much more likely to be affected by COVID-19. There is nothing at kind of a, a biological level about the way we lead our lives. that COVID is not an STI, mm-hmm. um, except to the extent that you breathe near someone that you have sex. But there's nothing about breathing near them or eating dinner with them. That doesn't change it. What is different with LGBTQ people is we are more likely to be poor, more likely to be homeless, less likely to get health care that is uh that is specific to us, to our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and LGBTQ people are overly represented, not only amongst those who are homeless, but also amongst low-wage workers and amongst retail workers. There's a huge percentage of retail workers that are LGBTQ. And mm-hmm. so that's... One- <laughs> Don't look at me! <laughs> and so that's uh, so that's one of the reasons why you know, um, there's higher rates because Because we deal with more people, you deal with more people. Yeah. Uh, and in retail work, you're never working remotely. You're not going to be, you know, working, uh, as an executive Mm -hmm. in a suite by yourself, you're going to be like face to face with people. And so we're
0: not administrators working for our delicious, you know, home offices, (laughs) (laughs) sipping
1: on lattes. I use the title of your book. I was working a catering gig and you know, The 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 people in attendance, they're all maskless, but the people in the kitchen, the people that are serving, we're all wearing masks. And I turned to the, one of the cooks. I said, it's because we're the viral underclass. And he just kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was his reaction when it you just said just kind of like,
1: you know. He like, I did not read the book. <laughs> oh, well, so, it's, it's just because you know, yeah. there's a, a harsh divide between the yeah. people that are working, I and took, they're all wearing masks. I took you know?
2: a bus today. And I would say like it, at least half the people were masked. And I've not been in an environment like that for a while. And the, and the bus line that I live on is largely service workers, black and brown Asian mm-hmm. service workers. Um, you know, this is not the case when I. I fly. Fifty percent of the people are not are not masking, but I think a lot of you know a lot of these people are like yeah, so they're aware I am at risk. And yeah, I, they're at risk, I, and I'm they're
1: living own, in intergenerational homes or around people, and it's you know they're like my life's worth it. But to a-
2: answer your question yeah.
1: about you know
2: who's in the viral underclass or not, I mean I think about it in the book about whether or not I am because I was born in much more poor conditions than I live now. I've gone through long periods of my life where I didn't have health insurance. You know now I'm a professor, I do have health insurance. It still Mm -hmm. costs too much and is shitty in lots of ways, but, you know, it's better than when I didn't. Sure. Um, And I've largely worked at home, but now I, you know, I teach in person again. Um, But one of the things I've found writing this book and thinking about some other countries, the book is very U.S. focused, but I do write about some other countries as well. Is that even though viral underclass can happen at any part of the world, there's one structural thing that's very particular to the U.S. And that is when you get sick with anything, including a virus, it can throw you off a fucking economic cliff. You know, you Mm. can lose everything from sickness. We don't we still I think that's one of the the biggest uh, political and ethical failures of this pandemic is that even three years into this, there's no mandatory paid sick leave. You know, we had this potential railroad worker strike that the Biden administration uh, overrode when they rejected the contract. The contract that was partially about just getting any sick days for railroad workers. Many people don't have any sick days, um, and so when you get sick in the U.S., even if you're middle class, your medical bills like that can, you know, very quickly throw you off the economic cliff. And so that's one way I think a a framework of thinking about a viral underclass is helpful for understanding how. Except for the one percent in the U.S., like we're all one sickness away from potentially economic ruin. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and, and everybody who's listening to this who doesn't feel like this affects to them, call your health insurance provider and ask them what your deductible is, and you'll be shocked. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of times, and it's interesting <laughs> because like a lot of health ins- doctors and health insurance providers and hospitals never want to tell you how much something costs until the bill comes.
1: And it's super confusing. So like uh, there was something like out of pocket, like it was like $4,000 for Fausto. It could be $4,000 for me, but because we're together, it will have to be like $10,000. Like it's cost more because our deductible
0: is more is higher because we're a family than if we were insured individually.
1: Mm. Yeah, I found, and, and, and,
0: and, and part of that is like, it's intentional. It's by design meant to be confusing. So you don't take action in preventing that problem from happening before it
2: takes place. And I had, um, when I started my job as a professor, I'd been a grad student for years. But even though I was, you know, a graduate student, we were unionized, actually in the same union, that it represented me when I was a journalist at my, my previous job before that. So I'd been with the same union for 10 years, mm-hmm. and we, I never had um, premiums because I was in a, not high-paying jobs, but had a very mm-hmm. strong union. Um, and so I was uh, not prepared when I started the professor job and had a good salary for real estate. oh, no, they're only paying 50% of the premium. So, you know, I'm paying hundreds of dollars a month, and then you still have to hit the deductible, and I didn't know until...
1: So wait a second. You're a professor at, at, Northwestern, at, a, at a yeah. Northwestern University. <laughs> And you pay for your own insurance hundreds of dollars I
2: pay 50% of my monthly premium. Wow. And so, and now had I started oh, yeah. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, like it would be, they would pay 80 or 90%. Oh, um,
1: because you're a new hire, you they, they, they pass right. it on to you.
2: And then you still have to get this deductible. And I didn't know as well, they're there like categories of them. So I had, after I had COVID, you know, I had a, a heart monitor I'm like, but medical equipment is a different kind of a deductible that doesn't, you know, count towards your overall deductible. Mm-hmm. So they find their way to get your money out of you. And I'm very, you know, grateful for being at a much more economically stable place in my life now than I have been before. But I'm also aware for so many people and families, and my, you know, my own family, and different parts of time you can very easily fall into this category. And I hope that one thing people who don't see themselves as necessarily being in the viral underclass when they read this book is to realize, like, we all, you know, unless you are a billionaire, we all have much more in common with mm-hmm. the viral underclass and creating solidarity with the viral underclass and making life better for everybody. If we created the kind of world where people weren't constantly getting sick, f- just let's start with COVID, mm-hmm. you know, if we took seriously indoor air quality and ventilation and all these things that we've learned from this particular virus, had we dealt with that, we would not be dealing with RSV and influenza, you know, and these other things that have been coming up since. People started gathering inside again, it would create better healthcare for everybody. If we'd mm-hmm. learned the lesson from it that yes, when people are sick, they should get paid fully to stay home until they're well again. Had that, you know, how we learned that lesson, that would make life better for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if we kind of centered who that harms the most, rather than what I feel ashamed as a journalist, I feel like the opposite's happened. Journalist New York Times level broadcast journalists. Mm-hmm are really centering the idea of what would make us uncomfortable that, you know, the, w- what could create any kind of discomfort for those of us who are well off. Um, and that framework makes life worse for everybody, rather than if we thought about the people who have the least, what if we made life better for them? That mm-hmm. would make life better for everybody.
1: Well, and the other thing too is like, you know, this science has shown that like that relationship you have with that person who checks out your groceries, that server, that bartender, those people that you see in your day to day life add value to, to your life and longevity to your life. Just simple human interactions with people is better for you. And so, you know, if that person's not healthy, they're not at their job, that's affecting you, and you might not even know it.
0: Um, In terms of stigma, we're talking about people who are disproportionately affected. And when we talk about disease and stigma, don't we risk stigmatizing those people by saying, like, you know it's black people or LGBTQ people who are getting this more, and you know as a consequence, people are like, "Well, I, my solution is because I can't change what the government does or what healthcare organizations do, I can change my own behavior pretty easily and say, "I'm not going to socialize with LGBT people, I'm not going to socialize with black or Latino or Hispanic people and and problem solved and and so
2: that creates more inequality, more isolation, more prejudice there's certainly a lot of tension, I think, in this question. It's not, it's not easily answered. Um, the way I deal with it, and this has a fair amount to do with my growing more comfortable with my own sexuality over the course of my uh, adulthood, but also my transition from journalism to public health and that I really appreciate how public health people talk about things in a quite neutral way without being inflammatory they don't giggle or get embarrassed to talk about unprotected anal intercourse like saying explicitly what unprotected anal intercourse is and sort of you know talking about it without without a sense of embarrassment just saying it mm-hmm. as it is and so i i dealt with this question a lot in when i was understanding what how this monkeypox you know uh, uh, epidemic was happening as as i was saying earlier um And one way to deal with it is actually to not talk about identity. I'm writing through something about this now. I think LGBTQ identity has been very divorced from sexuality. Um, And so sometimes I just reject that something is embarrassing. So I I am not going – I'm going to – yes – we see this virus happening. Where is it moving? It's moving through sex between men. Initial research shows that it's more in recep you know, it's more happening in receptive anal intercourse, which means that there are things about the rectum and the lining of it, and perhaps you know many more people who are who are uh, doing well in terms of a sexual health way who've started using a drug like prep because that controls HIV Maybe we need to think about do condoms need to be used for a while? Is that you know? Is it moving through the semen? Then we find, yes, it is replicating in semen. And I had a really brilliant colleague uh, from England, I think, who I was on a panel with, who there were a handful of cases that were with women. It was between one and two percent in most mm-hmm. countries. It was never moving beyond any higher than two percent. And so she was starting to investigate, oh, is that happening? Are the women who who are getting it engaging in anal intercourse? And that I think is like a really interesting way to separate activity from identity. Like this is not about being LGBT or mm-hmm. about being queer, but is anal intercourse the activity, which is something that straight people participate in as well. I know women that love it. Yeah. And so like, you know, like then that makes yeah. you say like, okay, like that's the activity we have to look at and see, is that the way that's moving? But part of that to me as and I try to push the boundaries of this as a journalist is to say like, that is nothing to be ashamed about. Now, Talking about that openly, does that, does that mean homophobes might jump on it? Yes. Homophobia is a problem mm-hmm. to be dealt with in the society. And homophobia causes illness. Homophobia causes illness. Mm-hmm. And homophobia is a very serious problem, but, and I don't like, I'm not trying to be overly negative in saying this, but like, it's not a simple thing to fix. You cannot fix homophobia by saying something that's not true or saying something that's misleading. So like, if the thing that's happening is that something's affecting the gay community, I reject that it's shameful to, 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 teach people how something's happening with anal intercourse and to say that they shouldn't know how to protect themselves with it. Under the banner that if we don't say that, you know, straight people will think we're okay. Like Marjorie Taylor Green's going to say whatever she's going to say, regardless. She's mm. looking for something. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. you know, when she's making fun of monkeypox, where she'd do it anyway. If we just pretend like this isn't happening to our group, and then like if we drill into it, and I'm sorry, that was probably not a great <laughs> phrase to use. But like, as you know, as this this one yeah. colleague of mine said, like like look, does it happening with women as well? Because initial research had shown that amongst women. Uh, amongst gay men and amongst women, the majority of people had engaged in party sex of some kind, um, and so then when we like start party with, sex meaning sex with drugs or sex in groups. Uh, actually, I bet sex in groups. That okay. was how was party about. city
1: went bankrupt. By the way, I don't know if anybody needs to know that.
2: Oh, I, no, I did
1: not know that. <laughs> Where are we going to send someone back to? <laughs> party um, sex. So
0: yeah, so in, in, in to summarize it, you know what was true in the past is true today. Is like coming out of the closet is not just because. It's about making society a better place. It's also a way to
2: protect yourself against danger. Yes, and and this is a scary thing and takes courage. And there are people who do it, uh, yeah. you know. And I think both of you have done it. And. The work that you've done for twenty Where years. Where's my in the award? Show. Oh yeah, there's six
0: of them over there. So, um, you know, um, yeah.
2: is like you know, is to to lead your life openly and to take the hits that come with it. Understanding ultimately, it's like that's part of your health and well being, and it's going to make other people healthy as well.
0: But I like this uh, angle that I don't feel like even myself is, uh, drills it into people. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here all night. Um, you know, that we don't emphasize enough, which is the the act of coming out of the closet is not just about your like psychological well being, this feel good. This uh, it's a it's a very real risk and harm reduction for your own safety. Yes, and and this is what I always tell young people like come out of the closet when you feel it's safe to do so. But understand that not coming out of the closet can, comes with it a lot of risk as well. Yeah. And this is one really clear example. Now, in terms of the politics of all this, it's, it's very tempting to fall into the, the, and, and the both-side-ism, the, the right-wing. It's a right-wing meme because right-wingers want people to feel that they're so disenfranchised politically that voting doesn't matter and that all political parties are corrupted and then both democrats and republicans are complicit in this horrible situation that we find ourselves in and yet at the same time you know i like i think about like the history of aids activism and how we got to where we uh, some of the tools that we have to fight this disease and one of them or this infection at this point and and that was that a lot of people even though they felt that you know the government was against them they got involved in the government. They got involved in these uh, nonprofits and healthcare organizations and steered them around. So, I guess, you know, from your perspective, because you're certainly feeling like, you know, both the Democrats and Republicans are complicit in all this, how do we sort of not fall prey to that cynicism and take action to try to steer this juggernaut in a direction that's more equitable and safe?
2: Well, voting is, kind. yeah, so, so yeah. voting is only one way people can be politically engaged. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of ways people can be politically engaged.
0: But we can't vote because, you know, voting for either Democrats or Republicans is going to be the same thing.
2: I understand, I understand that sentiment. Um, Lady Bunny. And <laughs> I, I understand that sentiment. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think that there, there are, with the Republicans, there's just sort of, you have to defeat them, not only electorally, but... Sure in all kinds of ways to, to um, you know, you're not going to, they're going to put in the laws that create situations like what's happening with drag queen story hour. But the way to fight drag queen story hour is not voting like people who are showing up and actually defending the drag queen. Like that's a very important form of Mm -hmm. politics that lots of activists do as well within the sort of electoral arena. I think that those of us who are, concerned about justice around viruses have to focus very critically on the Democrats because they are the ones that are, you know, that will respond and could respond in any way and are not doing what they need to do. So, Stephen, are you saying the Democratic Party is malleable to some degree? Only through extreme force. Okay. And... Well, the Republicans are not Mount Eliabola. No,
0: no. (laughs) Okay, So
2: there is a difference between both parties. I mean, in some ways, I feel like the Democrats are worse, not in their attempt, but in like how they give cover to what's actually happening. So I usually show this visually, Mm -hmm. you know, the 400,000 people died under Trump of COVID, Mm -hmm. 800,000 plus have died under Biden. One of the reasons why, you know, Biden comes in saying that he wants to do better by the pandemic. Biden also ushered in the crime bill and wanted to add 100,000 cops under. Clinton, did under Clinton, and then won, was trying to announce uh, last year that he was going to hire hundred thousand new cops. He actually couldn't do the announcement because he got COVID. <laughs> the day that he was going to go out and get it, um, and had to put wow. off for you know had to put off for a couple of weeks. And now he's bringing he's hiring Jeff Zients to be his chief of staff, who is not only uh, his COVID coordinator that made lots of bad decisions, but also is one of these. Um, People who's ruled over the ways healthcare has been so hampered over the past couple of decades. So like that's where I'm like, that's where if you care about these things and on the left, like you have to fight with these people because there is some malleability about them and you have to hold them up to what they said they would do when they got into office. You know, the Democrats uh, had at some point last year, I think it was in March of last year an additional $15 COVID uh, bill that was attached to the Ukraine package. They jettisoned the $15 billion to get the Ukraine package passed. They never came back to it. And so we're in a situation now, talking about a viral underclass, where if people are uninsured, they can't get tested and treated for COVID for free anymore. It's no longer being paid for by the federal government. Even though we know that people without insurance are the most likely to get sick from COVID because they're holding jobs where they don't have insurance and are likely face-to-face, the most likely to get sick from it and die from it, and so that's where I think that we really have to fight the Democrats to spend money on these kinds of things, and yet they keep steadily spending more and more money on police, more and more money on police, and not only is that creating, you know, putting more people in jail and creating the cycle of disease more, that's money that's not going to. Housing—it's not—it's money that's not going to the kinds of things that people could get um, that would keep them from getting sick in the first place.
0: Why are there—is anybody thinking that more
2: police is a solution? At this I don't point? know. I mean, I mean, this has I been mean, a very painful thing to, yeah. to think about, and I haven't really written about it yet. But I've—I've yeah. um, I've written about the Black Lives Matter movement since it began, and, and you know, both most people around the country tuned in to it more in 2014 when Michael Brown was killed in St. Louis, where I was already doing research on on HIV in mm-hmm. this, this case. But it really started actually uh, in response to the killing of, um, uh, in Florida, Trayvon Martin um, and uh, by George Zimmerman. Um, and in the 10 years since then, things have not gotten better on the police front. Like since we've actually been counting it, more people get killed by police every year. Um, and so whatever politics we've been doing, including voting, Uh, You know, has not. It's just not working. So these high-profile
1: cases with Trayvon Martin and with George George Floyd and everything that like things are worse now. I think they're worse in terms of you know actual death and what is funding that death.
2: You know, the 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 levels of money going to police increase every year. Um, They're better off in more people being aware, and I think in excuse me, yeah, in twenty twenty. When uh, the summer after George Floyd was killed and there were tens of millions of people protesting, a hundred different police departments, you know, gas, tear gas people around the country mm-hmm. and terrorized them into going back into their homes. Um, and that's like what we're giving more and more money to. So I think the consciousness is being raised, but the more the consciousness is being raised, the stronger the responses from the state. Um, and. What it might be, I actually, yeah, I don't want to go into this too. This this will not be my next book, but it might be the book after that. You know, one of the things I've been really thinking about is the role of the black police officer, which I've seen rise so much over these 10 years as well. So one of the responses to uh, these killings of, of uh, unarmed black men by police is to say, well, you know, diversify the police force. Um, And not only has some of that happened, but the mayors of almost every large city in America now, you know, Lori Lightfoot here, very close to the police, Eric Adams, literally a police officer, Uh, Karen Bass in Los Angeles, very close to the police, the the prior, Mm -hmm. uh, Val Demings, who was the Mm -hmm. mayor of Orlando, you know, many Mm -hmm. of them are black police officers. Uh, Memphis, this video hasn't come out yet, as as of when we're recording it, but there was a, a black man beaten to death by police, I think, last week. I think the video is coming out soon. All five, yeah, six, six, all five or six? Five, all five police officers yeah. were black. Yeah, I saw that. Um, and so that is sort of being used as a way to say, you know, we just need better relationships mm-hmm. with the police. But like policing as a structure itself is a huge part of how people get arrested, why they end up in jail, how they end up getting sick in jail, um, and then end up falling down the economic ladder and socially isolated. But it's also just taking dollars away from. Things that would make people safe in the first place. I, I write in the book about George Floyd. If people ever knew this in the first place, and most have forgotten, that when the autopsy was done on him, he was positive for COVID. Um, you know, he'd recently gotten the 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 novel coronavirus, and so I think a lot about how you know how do you survive that encounter? Could he have died of COVID anyway? Um, George Floyd, like. Tens of millions of people lost his job in the months before that was unemployed. federal you know federal aid hadn't started flowing in yet. The city of Minneapolis spends like forty percent of their money on police. and so I often think about what if rather than um, all that money going to the police in Minneapolis, what if the money we had for taxes went to people like George Floyd when they lost their job in a pandemic and they had housing and they had food? you know maybe he never ends up with the counterfeit bill and maybe he never ends up encountering mm-hmm. that police officer. maybe he's still alive. Um, but we're stuck in this really bad cycle where just more and more money. you know, like i I, I sometimes joke what percent of money would make you happy for police like ninety percent ninety five percent would that be enough? Well, I think you know, racism aside, I think a lot of people just
0: loathe their jobs. And, and so, in terms of like selling that idea to the general public, it it's um it's very they're very resistant to it because the the idea of somebody being given money to exist without having to struggle the way they are struggling is very off-putting. And, you know, and, and that's ultimately, if you want to make the world a better place, you know, provide jobs that are fun to be at, that are pleasurable to be at, that are in,
2: inspiring and
0: enlightening and illuminating. And so will we'll we'll also money.
2: pay you, like, enough to live. And which give is, you a yeah.
0: livable wage, you know. And so, because I see a lot of these corporations, I mean, a lot of these tech giants right now, they're cutting back. But in the past, Google made
2: fourteen billion profit last term, and they just and I'm sure you saw. Yeah, uh, they've laid off their their long term tenured
0: employees with
2: good records with emails. You know, with, with emails, or like yeah. you just tried to log in, or you tried to go to work, and your badge doesn't work. Like yeah. that, that's how they're getting rid of people. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said. It's very uh, short sighted in in a lot of ways because it harms the company
0: financially in the in the very short term.
2: But it scares the employees who are still there into yeah. being compliant, and I yeah. think that's part of what they're. I think that's part of what they want right now.
0: And, you know, but in, in terms of these the tech startup culture and tech giant culture, um, one thing that I observed is that they love to invest in the illumination or in the diversification of their workforce. And, and at the same time, they're terrified, mortified about unionization. Yes. And to me, I'm like, look, you are all the grandchildren or the children of people who are part of unions. Ask your parents, ask your grandparents, what they think about unions. Don't ask your boss; they're gonna they're paid to tell you no. <laughs> and and in terms, and you know, we need to stop thinking about unions in terms of police unions, but also think of not think of them as just ways to making your your job a pleasurable place to be, and the outcome of your job to be something that gives you the tools and resources to have a good life. Well, I've so,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah. my my grandfather who was. Um, his father was born enslaved, and then my grandfather was a sharecropper. But he also worked at a factory plant, and he mm-hmm. was the union—you know—the the shop steward eventually, um, and that was a huge part of like how he was able to build a life for his family. Um, and I—I I was in the same union at two different jobs, and I—I I often think like, yeah, I worked for UAW twenty one ten, you know, rather than NYU or the Voice, because mm-hmm. um, like those are the people—the people I was on the union bargaining yeah. committee with. Are some of my closest friends, um, and you really build huge bonds through that. But you'll see the the interest in diversity, equity, inclusion will stop when, when your marginalized employees are trying to band together for um, better living conditions. Well, and they do that.
0: I think in some the, the the dark side, the the nefarious side of of diversity in the corporate workforce is because it's really harder for somebody who is you know, Puerto Rican and black and Irish to come together and agree on something than they are if everybody is the same race and cultural background. And so they know that to some degree. And so they're like, want to have basically, Mm -hmm. you know, the Benetton, the United Colors of Benetton in their workforce because, you know, when we are so different from each other, then the only thing we can agree on is the fact that we need a job and we need to come into work. And get the job done together. But in terms of disagreeing with leadership, that becomes a much more difficult task and becomes impossible in some ways to, you know, fight against this phenomenon of the viral underclass, hmm. you know. So, you know, I mean, you're shaking your head here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about how to respond. Yeah. Um, they don't. Yeah. They They, they won't like mm-hmm. that when we. Come together about needing a job and wanting more pay for that job. Um, Is it just I, money? Because they can afford the money. You know?
0: I think there was a what? Forbes, does this wonderful study on, on like the top te- 10 corporations in the United States. And they found that some companies could afford, they pay so little to their employees from the executive down to the lowest person on the totem pole um, that if they gave them 10 times. The amount they're paying them, it still wouldn't budge the needle in, in terms of, of uh, people expenditure. That they just spend so little of their of their
2: budget on just paying on salaries. Yeah, I wonder. You know, for a company like Twitter, which has a large role in the world, mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, did and you I,
1: leave Twitter? Are you still on Not Twitter? Not really.
2: I mean, I, I don't spend time there anymore. I go there yeah. to post updates. Okay. Um, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm exploring some other platforms. Um, well, with uh, sex workers and you know OnlyFans, it's their post
0: that they're updating. Yeah. <laughs> you um, get it? Yes. Thank
2: you. <laughs> um,
0: I, you know, that's what the thing. Is, like, it's like, if it's a danger for your social media platform when it's all just sex work and, and sexually explicit. Not that I'm complaining about it. But when it becomes only that, yeah. then it's not really a marketplace of ideas. It's just sexually prurient
2: stuff because there's everybody else's flood, you know. Yeah. Um, Twitter only had like 3,700 employees, which I was so shocked when I found out, you know, this. Yeah, this, tiny, tiny it's a ti- And then, you know, and then like, oh, we have to cut that. And I think that some of it's just a power play. And then I also think for for Musk, it's probably – some kind of experiments, like let's see how long, like how much labor we can get rid of and still run the product, mm. um, to apply to other things. So yeah, like they could afford to, they could, af- yeah, I'm sure Google is not is not going to rise or fall over twelve thousand employees with fourteen billion dollars of quarterly profits. Mm. Um, but part of it's just an experiment. I think both to, to create a more compliant workforce, to scare people, mm. um, and to uh, hedge against, you know, if interest rates goes up and they they want to borrow money. But I think it's also just to see like what can we get away with, you know, as we move into a more automated environment, how much labor can we possibly get rid of?
0: Stephen, I appreciate so much of what you do and and the the humanity and the compassion that you bring into talking about people who generally get overlooked or ignored or uh, because people are terrified of them you know it's, it's one thing is like we deal with racism and people are marginalized but it's also like uh, you know the the crises the challenges that these type of people face is also going to be another reason for people to not look at them with compassion and empathy
2: and you know you doing that is a great service to humanity thank you that means yeah. a lot and i'm going to keep thinking about something you asked me because it's something it's been in the back of my mind but i want to i want to Think about it um, more sharply, and how do we, yeah, how do we deal with the stigma that people actually deal with? There's there's real consequences to um, being blunt about health matters that go out. And I thought a lot how it was not fair for people who uh, had to stand outside who don't want to come out yet. Um, and who, you know, who, because of homophobia are going to be judged in ways. I remember thinking, like, when I was standing outside the steamworks, I'm like, I don't know that I would have been comfortable doing this when I was 20 years old, you know, mm. waiting to, to get a shot out here. And I thought that it was unethical from journalists who were like taking... Um, video of people's faces in it, because when you go in for any kind of medical treatment, you should not have to have that broadcast, you know, to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're waiting yeah. for
0: monkeypox, you don't want to be standing
2: in line mm-hmm. right. outside of a club for two hours, right. you and, know, and I'm sure, like, yeah, And I'm sure some people, like, looked at that line and laughed. Yeah.
1: And, you know, we don't really edit this podcast too much, but sometimes we ask guests when they start talking about, like, a medical thing that they've had, or something like that's personal, and like that we have to become the bearers of that and like hold on to that for whatever. We'll just take it out because it's just like, you know, in five years, are you really comfortable with yeah. putting your medical information out there? Right. I mean, sometimes if it's, you know, if they're dealing with HIV and they're an HIV activist, you know, it makes sense. But sometimes people just out of left field, they just start talking about some kind of medical thing they have. And we're just like, um, let's not go there. Or,
0: your so, or like your social secure number, like <laughs> sixty nine, sixty nine, sixty nine. Yeah. Six. But it
1: used to be, you know, back in the day, you'd go to like these gay meetings or gay agenda things and like press would be there and people would stand up and they'd want to speak. And they're like, please no photos of me. You know, no, I'm not out yet. I mean, you don't really see that too much anymore, but I'm sure it still happens. But yeah, you're right.
0: Well, in this documentary that we're looking at, uh, Miss Cl- Call Me, Miss Cleo. Yeah. Um, oh, have you seen wonderful. it? Oh, it's oh, wonderful. Oh, my God. I'm
2: so, I, I can't great. wait to see it. Is, it. is it streaming? It's on HBO. It's streaming on okay, HBO Max right yeah. now. And part of it is like it, it <laughs> I don't like harkens psychics. back. Like, maybe we I, very but, but I, Like yeah. she's very big in my like teenage mind sure. of, of her being yeah. on the local TV station. Has. I do speak with the dead. I am not a psychic. <laughs> but
0: um, in terms of Miss Cleo, you know, one thing that we see in the in the second half of the documentary was how this woman who was very much marginalized and targeted and maligned and ridiculed, uh, really redeemed a lot of her life and her loneliness and isolation that she faced by the LGBTQ community in Florida and coming out and coming out and and part of that was like in a lot of ways we're losing those spaces because of the digital space yeah. right so all these dating hookup apps are sort of robbing us of physical spaces where we can interact with each other on a non-sexual but a cultural level and and that to me is very alarming because of the fact that as we face all these challenges and obstacles we no longer have the coffee house the the theater the bar, the park, the, the, the physical space where we can, you know, accidentally come across each other and get to know each other before we even have sex.
2: Yeah, one of the most painful things I feel like I've heard people say in different parts of the world I've been in since the pandemic, since it began, was um, sadness about losing spontaneity. You know, yeah. the, the conversations you have with mm-hmm. your barista. Yeah. The mm-hmm. ways that you run into people without having to make a Zoom date.
1: Going to a party you know, and going to into a party, fabulous people.
2: Meeting new people. <laughs> you know, Meeting people that you're not, you know, know that you're going to necessarily mm-hmm. meet. Um, and this is one of these tensions that I think viruses really make us wrestle with is that this virus, the COVID virus has, I think, made many people understand how much they do value being in physical space and community with one another. Um, but that take, that comes with risk. It's never going to be risk-free. And that comes with group responsibility of how, to, um, of how to create those spaces the best ways we can. Not mm. risk-free, but, you know, with as little danger as possible. Mm. Um, and viruses just keep reminding us, like, we are connected. There's a, a poet who I, I teach. Uh, she's also a journalist, uh, uh, Seema Yasmin. And a, she's a journalist, a poet, and an MD. <laughs> she kind of all does right. it all. Um, and one of the poems is about, it writes really beautifully, how our, our DNA is 8% changed over human history from viruses, from these encounters we've had. Mm-hmm. You know, like eight 8% of it's been changed over mm-hmm. time. And so we as human beings who are, I mean, not the three of us probably, but, but, but um, uh, although I don't know, maybe you're donors. Um, but, you know, we as a species that, that reproduce going forward, like the species will be different from the effect of this virus. You know, like it's going to change us as a species and our mm-hmm. offspring will, you know, will will have a slightly altered DNA that will then go on to change over time.
1: Uh, I was wondering if that was the case. Cause I know like, um, you know, tulips, you know, in the Netherlands, they discovered that the reason, why we have all these different varieties of tulips in different shapes is because of viruses. affects the bulbs, mm-hmm. and then that becomes part of their DNA. And yeah. so over the course of human evolution, uh, viruses have affected us and how we've become who we are.
2: Yeah, they've changed about 8% of our, of our DNA over time. Wow,
1: that's amazing. Uh, there's
2: a little bit of you and me and every bit of
0: HIV. And that's correct. <laughs> and <laughs> vice versa.
1: <laughs> COVID-19 now, right?
0: And COVID and monkeypox, monkey avian flu, and... <laughs> Chacagunya Chakagun- and <laughs> dengue and all these other you know, the thing about viruses they have great names. Absolutely fabulous names. There it could be drag queens
1: names, like, <laughs> Well I just, that's,
0: what, was, uh, what was the drag name that everybody was going to use for a while? You remember that was? No. Rona?: Rona. Yeah, ronavirus or...
2: (laughs) My favorite. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I I made a list of them that could either be... Monique
1: Pox. I made the mistake of calling the wrong, uh, wrong person Monique Pox, and they didn't like it.
2: I think my <laughs> my drag name would be, or I, I remember at some point I made a list of like drag yeah. names or punk band punk punk band, band and, names, and so community spread. That was my.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as a response to HIV, there were a lot of uh, punk queer punk bands that had viral words in them, you know, and certainly uh, germ warfare. It was yeah. a f- famous drummer, and that mm-hmm. uh, um, just off the top of my head, you know, and so it's like. Uh, Actually, yeah. yeah, there must be
1: more out there. Yeah, there's sure.
0: tons. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was like, uh, it was part of it is Chris like Chris would know. The the it's about reclaiming something that's so horrible that it no, by laughing at yeah. it, it, it doesn't it takes its fear away, you know. And and it's important to think about the virus as just this extension of your life. It's it's there. It's it's how we respond to it. That's ultimately going to sh- you know
2: show to humor future generations. Our humanity. There's a really great um, art collective called "What Would an HIV Doula Do?" That I write about just briefly in the book. But an I, HIV, what? What would an HIV doula do? Explain doula, what a doula. A doula, is a, doula? To a doula
1: and other people who don't. So know a,
2: doula a doula is, is um, somewhat like a midwife. Yeah, uh, it's somebody who um, is is with some uh, with with someone while they're giving birth and helping yeah. bring i am meeting with them before. Um, you know, teaching them how to breathe, and then welcoming the child into the world. The concept has actually had a fair amount of movement lately. There was mm-hmm. an article a friend of mine wrote recently about death doulas, yeah. who also try to help bring people into death with care. Uh, you know, and the idea, part of it, is to to um, uh, to make it less of an individual experience, and to not say to the you know to the parents. This child is here and you're fully responsible mm-hmm. for it. But to say that we're welcoming this baby into the world and the baby is the collective responsibility of this whole community. And we welcome the community and you know the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this takes to welcome this child. And so uh, what would an HIV doula do? Does something similar, um, which is understand HIV as a relationship and to say that, you know, you, it, rather than when someone gets a diagnosis of HIV, cry about or gnashing of the teeth or, you know, or stigma or whatever, to say like, well, this is a part of who you are now and the care for it is not just on your shoulders. You know, how to care for it is your doctor, your sex partners, your friends, you know, community health. we're all here together to Care for the relationship of this virus in our community. It's not just on you.
1: And I thought So it's like a caseworker for you, but a, a different kind of level. Well,
2: it's a ritual. Level. It's it's
0: about a ritual well, yeah. and a promise that you're not on your own. Yes, yeah.
1: and that we care for
0: it
2: together, which mm-hmm. I think is a very you know apt thing about viruses. Like it, it's not it can't just be any one person mm-hmm. to quote unquote you know try to keep from anyone else getting sick. It's something that we have to do together, and I think that's you know gay men of that's a big that point of your done.
1: book is as a community you need to come together to solve these kinds of problems. Yeah. yeah,
2: and that we don't just have the time like we don't get to say it's over because we want it to be over. Yes, we all want COVID to be over. That virus is
1: still here. More people are dying today as they were a year ago. Is that correct? Or is it less? I don't know if
2: we're, I don't know if how we line on to the huge Omicron. Now, I don't think, uh, I think we were in the big Omicron surge this time last year. But certainly mm-hmm. many, yeah, we, last last week we were averaging, we had like 4,200 deaths. It was about 600 a day last week. And that That's was a certainly lot a lot more than last summer. Mm-hmm.
0: Dr. Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much. The new book, was, it's been out for now a year, right? It's been, no, no, since August. Since August. five months? Five months, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like you've been talking about oh, You've it. been yeah.
1: everywhere. <laughs> I mean, how many interviews how many been? How many Wait, let me, done done? So, let me say the name. Let me say the name
0: uh, The Viral Underclass The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide is available everywhere you can buy
2: books so get a copy Mm. and you know make this part of your required reading of your instructor i very much would appreciate that and if any of your listeners um happen to live in new york city uh the brooklyn academy of music is having a film uh film retrospective based on my book uh called viruses on film it's going to be running at uh, the brooklyn academy of music from march 15th to 23rd and we're showing 17 features and five shorts from 10 different countries about um, viruses and how we interact with them. Parasite, I love that.
1: contagion, all great movies, right? Yeah.
0: And Patient Zero, the musical?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Steven. Thank you, Steven. Thank you. Take care everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.